Corner Fringe Ministries presents The Hell of Torah, Part 3, with Daniel Joseph. We are in our third week of this theme, The Hell of Torah. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the reality of the judgment that is to come upon the entire world. And the fact that that judgment is actually going to be manifested a particular way, through fire, right? And now we know, coming into this third week, what that fire is. It is Torah. It is the law of God. Now, this week, I want to take a closer look at the effects that this fiery judgment is going to have, specifically how it's going to impact all of humanity, because... When you look at Scripture closely, you realize that the fiery judgment that is coming upon this earth, well, it's not just going to be something that is experienced by the wicked alone. The righteous are also going to experience the hell of Torah. It's just that the experience is going to be somewhat different for the righteous than it is for the wicked. So today, we're going to talk about the effect that this holy fire is going to have on both righteous and the wicked. And how we're going to do it is through two stories. Two stories found in the Tanakh. Stories that were written, they were given to us, they were preserved to give us prophetic insight. Prophetic insight on what is to come, what is coming. Now, the first story I want to look at is actually found in Bereshit, or as we commonly say, Genesis. It's a story we all know, at least I'm, I'm going to assume most of you are well acquainted with this story. I've talked about it before. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Scripture indicates that the city of Sodom, it had actually reached its breaking point in regard to the sin that it was committing. In fact, the sin had gotten so bad, you think about it, the Lord sent His angels, holy messengers, from Shamaim, from the kingdom of heaven. He sent two of His messengers to go and destroy it. Well, when these messengers come into town, Lot invites them under his roof. And these men come under his roof. And what happens? The entire city surrounds it. The men of the city came up upon Lot's house because they wanted to fornicate with the holy men of God. Think about that for a second. That is how debased this city was. How debased Sodom was. There was absolutely no morality. Unbridled lust, unbridled passions were running amok. It was what you would call a totally lawless atmosphere. So needless to say, since it had reached its precipice, the point where God could no longer take the sins that were being committed, he sends his angels to destroy the land of Sodom. Now, in the midst of this, we find that the angels' task that they were allotted was not only to go and destroy the city of Sodom. There was something else that they were given to do. Something else that they had to do. And what was that? It was to grab Lot and his family and take them to safety. That's what it was. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. In Genesis 19.12, we read, Then the men, the men being the angels, holy men of God, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place, 
for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So just as God is beginning to pour out his judgment upon the land of Sodom, something very interesting takes place that needs to be made note of. And what is that? Judgment of God is coming, something happens. There's a separation. There's a separation that takes place almost simultaneously. There's a separation that takes place as God's wrath is going to be poured out. It's the righteous being taken away from the wicked. And this is fascinating when you consider what Yeshua had taught us in the Gospel of Matthew. We read chapter 13, verse 47. These are the words of Yeshua. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered, some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Well, obviously, Yeshua is being metaphorical here. What is he really saying? Well, fortunately, he tells us exactly what he means in plain terms. He goes on. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth. Now, I want to stop here. Who was it who was sent to grab Lot and his family, to separate them? Angels of God. Okay? And here we read, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just. And what happens? They cast them into the furnace of fire. What do you think is going to happen to Sodom as we continue? It is going to be turned into a furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So what we see happening in this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, understand, this is so much more than a history lesson. It's a revelation of how things are going to unfold at the end of the age. There is going to be a separation with the wicked and the just. And there is going to be fire. There is going to be a hell of Torah. Now getting back to our story, continuing verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, get up, get out of this place. Now just a little backdrop here. I really don't want to go too far down this path. There's, it's a whole teaching right here. But it is dark. The sun has not risen yet. And this is the point where Lot goes out to grab his sons-in-law to warn them of what is coming. It's still dark. It is not light yet, okay? And so we read, we'll reread this, just to keep everything in context so you can appreciate what's happening. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up. Why would he say get up? Because they're sleeping, okay? There's so much prophetic implication here. They are sleeping. Get up and get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Such an interesting response we find by his sons-in-law. Lot comes to them. He's in the dark. He's in the midst of darkness. And what is he bringing? He is bringing light. He is bringing the truth. He brought his sons-in-law the truth, telling them judgment is coming. And how do they respond? Oh, that's ridiculous. He seems to be joking. What's so frightening about this is that when you step back and you look at what is happening in society today, you realize that this story 
And the response therein has an eerie similarity to what is actually happening in this country and actually throughout the world. So often, we go out and we share the gospel of Yeshua, right? With people we run into. We tell them, you should be telling them, this is part of the elementary principles, judgment is coming. There's a reason we need a Savior. There's a reason we need to turn back. Because the hell of Torah is coming. And when we share these things with all the passion and intensity that we have, with not just our friends, but even our own family, it is terrifying when you see these types of responses. Seem a little nuts. You're a little off your rocker. These people we talk, they're men of science. They're men of logic. You're a little out there. You seem a little crazy. And this is exactly what we see that is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot's sons-in-laws. You know, the more you look at this story and the more you look at the environment that existed right up to judgment, the more you realize where we are in time in regard to the end of the age. This is like looking at what Yeshua talks about the fig tree. This is like looking at the fig tree blossoming. When I read this story with prophetic implications, because it's like I'm reading today's newspaper. You want to know how close we are to the end of the age, to the judgment of God? Read these stories. Study the stories in Tanakh. And you will see the fig tree has bloomed. It's frightening. We go on to verse 15 in Genesis uh, chapter 19. When the morning had dawned, now the morning's dawning, the angels urged Lot to hurry saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters. The Lord being merciful, very important, they're being brought to safety, away from the judgment of God. And what does it say? The Lord is showing him mercy. We're going to be coming back to this next week. So the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now there is something that I want to point out here. Notice the angels of God literally took the hand of the entire family. They took the hands of the entire family and led them out. And now I take you to Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Judgment is coming, right? And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, uh, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. This is exactly what we see happening with Sodom, in, in Sodom, with Lot and his family. The angels have come forth and they took hold of the righteous and they immediately took them out. They brought them out, separating the righteous from the wicked. And we go on to verse 17 now. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. This is an explicit command that he commands him. As he is going to safety, or as you could even consider, spiritually speaking, the promised land, as he's going there, he says, don't look behind you. 
nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please no, my lords. Verse 19. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, the city, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Verse 21. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also. In that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city is called Zoar. Zoar just means little. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Now here you have Lot literally arriving at safety. The sun comes up, and this is what happens in the next verse. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. The hell of Torah came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was their lawlessness that brought judgment upon them. It was their lawlessness. Because they rejected the law of God, the hell of Torah came upon them. Fire and brimstone, we're told here. These are the descriptors used. Fire and brimstone. I find this interesting because this is exactly the terminology, the wording that is used in the book of Revelation. Let me take you there. You're going to see the mere parallel here. Revelation 14, verse 9 Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with what? Fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. Exact same terminology that is used that we see in this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is meant to teach us about what to expect, about the environment that exists at the end of the age, and what's going to happen to the lawless, to the disobedient to God. The very same terms that we find there are found here in Revelation, talking about the finality of it all, the judgment of God, the end of the age. It is fire and brimstone. So, bottom line is, the more we look at this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the more you realize, ultimately, it's describing our near future. What is literally upon us. Now, back to the story, going on to verse 25. So, he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But verse 26 But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. The very thing that they were commanded not to do, Weislot did. She looked behind. And understand what's actually happening here. She kept in her heart an emotional attachment to her place of habitation, to Sodom. But it came at a price. It cost her her life, right? If you want to escape the judgment to come, you need to learn something from this story. If you want to escape the judgment to come, you cannot look back. 
Listen to the words of Yeshua in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. But Yeshua said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We as believers in Yeshua, we've got to be so careful. We cannot mourn the loss of the things of the world. We can't mourn the, those things which we can no longer do or be a part of. Those things which our flesh craves and desires. We can't serve God and mammon. We can't be double-minded. There is no place in the kingdom for the double-minded, for those who are going to look back over the shoulder. When you enter into covenant with Yeshua, when you commit your life to Him, understand this. It is going to cost you everything. Understand that. If you understand anything about coming into the faith, understand that. It is going to cost you everything in this life. Daily, you'll be required to sacrifice. Daily, you'll be presented with the option to choose life or to choose death. To choose blessings or embrace curses. Daily, you'll be required to fight the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Every single day, you will have to take up your cross. Yeshua in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, Yeshua here is instructing us He's given us the very same instructions that we see were delivered to Lot and his family. Don't look back, not with your heart, not with your mind. Don't even entertain those things which you used to do. You have to break off your friendship with the world. Because anyone who makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no in-between. There's no such thing as being lukewarm and being saved. Or being on the middle of the fence. You're on the middle of the fence, you're lost. You're looking back. You're attempting to hold the things of the world as, as long as it, you know, it's just amazing to me how many Christians go out and they love their Christianity so long as it doesn't interrupt their life too much. Right? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is a warning to the faithful, to the elect. Compromise is not an option. There's one direction for us to move. One, and that is closer to Yeshua every single day. More prayer, more meditation, more word, more love, more encouragement. Less of the flesh, less passion, less desire for the things of the world. Amen? Going on to verse 27. And we're going to end in, in, in this part of the story here. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of the furnace. So Abraham actually perceived something. Now something I want to address here, because you might come across particular teachings that say, when Lot's wife looked back, what 
the angels were really commanding her, ultimately what the Lord was commanding her, was not to look upon the judgment. And that's really what it means. It doesn't refer to necessarily turning back and keeping her heart to where she was, keeping her heart in the land of Sodom, like I just proclaim now. What they say is that, no, she was commanded just to not look back at the judgment. She wasn't supposed to see what was to befall the wicked. And that's phony baloney. Because right here we see Abraham, righteous man of God, what is he doing? He is looking at the judgment of God. And he's seen the smoke ascend. And it says specifically the smoke of a furnace. And why would it say that? Because the Lord kindled a fiery furnace. Fire, it was on fire. It was the hell of Torah. The whole moral of the story here, just to sum it all up, I want to go to Peter's second epistle because he gives us a summary of really what the point of all this, what we should be taking away from this. And listen to what Peter says. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction. They fell under condemnation. Now this is going to come into play as we continue in the next couple weeks. They came under condemnation. Making them an example to those who would afterward live ungodly. In other words, Peter's telling us, look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Understand something. They are the example. For if you want to live ungodly, you're going to have the same fate that they had. Peter's bringing a relevance of the story. It's not just words on a paper that have no meaning, or it's not just a recording of history. No, the story is for you. It applies to you. It's a warning. But this isn't the whole story. He gives us the other side of it. Peter also articulates the righteous and the blessing that comes upon them as he goes on in the next verse. And delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. I want to read that again because there are things that are going to come into play again next week. He delivered, there's a specific description given here, righteous Lot. And Peter's intentional. Righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Fascinating how Peter describes the filthy conduct of the wicked, right? Notice at the very end of verse 8 here, he utilizes the particular term animas. Animas. What does animas mean in the Greek? It means without law, lawless. The very thing that modern-day Christianity is attempting to tell you, you don't need the law. We don't need the law of God. It's no longer valid. That is animas or antinomian. It's against the law. It is a totally lawless concept. It's totally against God. In other words, it leaves you, if, if you embrace animas, if you embrace this concept without having law, it leaves you to accept the dictates of your own heart. That's what you're left with. And everywhere I read in Scripture, you follow the dictates of your own heart, you are going to die. That's the truth of it. There's something else that I, I, I think is worth mentioning in this passage. Notice here what he does. In explaining 
this descriptor of Lot. He is righteous. And he says it over and over again. There is a description given that is attributed to the righteous. It is an action, a reaction to wickedness, to lawlessness. What does he say? Oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Oppressed. And then tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seen in here and there. So he uses these terms, oppressed and tormented. I want to point out something very critical here. The righteous men of God, who are truly following Yeshua, they will display these attributes. The attributes of being oppressed by all the lawless deeds that are happening. They will torment the righteous soul. They will weep. They will mourn. If you are not weeping and mourning inside and are aghast by the things that are happening in this country, I am scared for you. I am very scared for you. Because the description of the righteous is they cannot handle the sin. And this is not, I step up on my soapbox and I elevate myself and I'm so much holier than you scenario. That's not what I'm explaining. That's not what Peter's dealing with. Peter's talking about someone who's truly convicted by all the wickedness around him, and it pains him. It literally causes him to weep. Do you have that emotion? Do you have that reaction to what is happening in this country and what is happening in the world? What's happening to the faith? The faith is being debased. Where is the mourning? Homosexuality is running amok, even in the church and even in the leadership. Where is the mourning? Marriages are being ripped apart. Adultery is commonplace in the church. Where's the mourning? There's a passage in Ezekiel, very powerful, speaks to this very thing that Peter is talking about that he just articulated. Ezekiel 9.3, Now when the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. Going on to verse 4. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. This is the holy city of God. And put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. Who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done. A mark gets placed. It's interesting, we also find a mark being placed In Revelation, now I'm not talking about the mark of the beast on the wicked, but the mark of the Father on the righteous. A mark is placed on on the forehead here because they're sighing and crying. They cannot handle the abominations. It tears them up inside. In verse 5, To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, Maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. This is the point that Peter was making in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. The righteous who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done on the earth, like Lot, these are the ones who will receive grace. These are the ones who receive the mercy of the Lord. They are spared the hell of Torah. The fire has no power over them. And this theme of the righteous being spared, the wicked being destroyed, 
When you get that theme, that concept in your mind of this contrast between good and evil, the righteous and the wicked, you start to see this theme everywhere in Scripture. It's riddled with these passages. Let me give you just a couple examples. Ezra 8.22, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him, but His power and His wrath are against all those who forsake Him. And I want to be very clear, as I have been before, when you see the Bible talking about forsaking the Lord, it means one thing. They have walked away from His commandments. You read 2 Chronicles 24. You read Deuteronomy 8. It is when they come off the righteous path, when they come off from hearing the voice of God, and they stop keeping His commandments, and they start doing the dictates of their own heart. That's what it means to forsake Him. And we're also told if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Do not be deceived. We go to Psalm 145, verse 20. The Lord preserves, look at this, there's preservation for people. I'm interested already. I want to be preserved. The Lord preserves all who love Him. And we go back to what we talked about last week. What do Yeshua say? If you love me, what do you do? You keep His commandments. You walk in His mitzvot, right? And we're told here in Psalm 145, well, now we know why Yeshua is saying it, because those are going to be the ones that are preserved. But all the wicked He will destroy. Psalm 37, verse 37, mark the blameless land, man. Amazing, because we just went through Ezekiel, and we see this spiritual imagery of what happened. A mark went out and was placed on them. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is shalom. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Over and over again. The righteous are preserved. The wicked are destroyed. The key component here is, well, how do we understand, how do we define those who are righteous and those who are wicked? This is what I want to know. Well, interestingly enough, Torah does that. The Torah divides that. It creates the dividing line. Throw it away. What happens? You muddy the waters. People can't see clearly. They don't know if they're walking in wickedness or righteousness. They're doing whatever that feels right in their emotions. They're left to the dictates of their own heart. One more. Proverbs 13, 13. He who despises the word will be destroyed. What do you suppose they're talking about here? What do you suppose Solomon's talking about? The word. The word of God. If you despise, you will be destroyed. But he who fears the commandment, the mitzvah, will be rewarded. It's that simple over and over again. We could do this for weeks and months. I could be showing you the contrast that exists in Scripture. I, I, won't, I won't, but I could. Because of time, we're going to move on to our next story. This story is found in the book of Daniel. A story that's going to stay consistent with our theme, the hell of Torah. And this one is as well known as the story we just covered. But we go to Daniel chapter 3, and this is what we read. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. Its width, 60, or 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So this image that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up, it's actually in Babylon. Now, 
we're actually given some information, and this is not why I'm going to this story. This is kind of a side point, but be that as it may, I'm going to address it. Notice here that we are actually given dimensions to this image. We are told that it's 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. Well, there's something that I want to point out here. A cubic, for those of you who don't know, is about a foot and a half. So just to put this under the scale that you can understand, it's quite impressive. It's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide at its base. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide at its base. Another interesting thing to note about this image, nowhere will you find anywhere in the book of Daniel regarding this image that there is anything attributed to as far as a Babylonian god. Nothing. There's nothing describing that this is a Babylonian god or that it's made in an image of an animal or that it's made in an image of a man. It sticks throughout the entire story through this generic statement of image. Generic statement of image. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because I think I have a pretty good idea of what this image look like. Because we have one such here in our own backyard, if you will, in, in the United States of America, sitting in Washington, D.C. It's called the Washington Monument. Now, something about the dimensions that I gave you. The structural ratio is exactly 10 to 1. 9 feet at its base, 90 feet tall. It is 10 to 1. Venture to guess what the structural ratio of the Washington Monument is. It is exactly 500 feet tall in some inches, and its base is 55 feet wide. It is exactly a 10 to 1 ratio. This might give you an idea of what it was, or give you some perspective of what it was that Nebuchadnezzar had actually set up. Now, this was far more grand. The Washington Monument's far more grand. Exact same scale, though. 10 to 1. All right, continuing on in our passage. Daniel chapter 3, verse 2. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication. It's so interesting because when you do something, when you erect a memorial like the Washington Monument, what did it have? It had a dedication. This is what you do when you erect an image. You have a dedication. So here, the entire globe, or if you will, entire land, everyone who is anyone who is in authority is invited to this dedication. All right? There's something else worth mentioning. that if you've ever witnessed a dedication, I have, there are always what? What happens at dedications? There are profound proclamations that are spoken. Every dedication that you go to, whether it's going to be even, even the dedication of, of the Lord's temple, profound things reverberate. Profound things are spoken at dedications. This, you will find, is no exception. And so we're told that they, they, all these men, anyone who was anyone in the land who had authority, they came to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And we continue in verse 3. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here's the dedication. Here is the proclamation we're looking for. At least this is the beginning of it. The herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. In other words, they had gathered the entire world. All the peoples, nations, and languages. The terminology that is spoken here first, it grabs you. It should grab you if you're familiar with the book of Revelation because the same terminology, the same imagery, the exact same context of what is happening here is found in Revelation 12 and 13 and so forth. Exact same context. You go to Revelation 13, we are told that the beast is given authority over all the, 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 the tribe, tongue, and nation. Or you could say what we read right here, the peoples, nations, and languages. And what does Nebuchadnezzar have? He has authority over all these. He's making a proclamation, a command to go out to do what? Worship. Worship. This is what's at stake. The command that has gone out here in Daniel is all about worship, and it's to the farthest ends of the land. All people. Exact same thing is happening in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. The exact same thing. And we continue in verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, everyone, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. How do the people respond to this proclamation? Well, in the very, I didn't put the next verse up here, but in the very next verse and so on, we find the people, all of them, obey the king's command. They fall down and worship. Exactly what we see happening in Revelation. Well, the tribes, tongues, and people, they all fall down and worship the beast. But here in Daniel, there is an exception. There is a couple of Jewish men that will not bow their knee and worship to Nebuchadnezzar, to this image. Men by the names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you need to understand, when they stood up and refused to worship the beast or refused to worship this image, it caused a stir throughout the, the, the province of the Chaldeans. And because of this, the Chaldeans, well, frankly, they were offended. They were offended that these Jews did not go along with the program. Apparently, these Jews were not PC enough, were not politically correct enough. So what did they do? They turned into little tattletales. And they ran back to Nebuchadnezzar. So what happened? Well, we continue in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury. I want to point this out. The refusal of the worship did something to Nebuchadnezzar. He got enraged with fury. Sound familiar 
Because Revelation chapter 12 says the exact same thing. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of the offspring. Why? Why does the dragon in Revelation 12 go to make war? Because they refuse to worship the beast. And it's interesting because another description of the righteous is given. Attributes to these righteous who refuse to worship the beast. They carry the testimony of Yeshua and they keep the commandments of God. That is, that is what is described in Revelation. And so it's the exact same context of what's going on is happening here in Daniel. And I keep pointing these out to show you how relevant the stories in Torah and the prophets are. They are relevant for us. There's so much there for us to glean from. The Lord has so much to speak to his elect through these stories. So in Daniel 13, or chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now at this point, he's being congenial, he's being nice. You know, I just want to check this out. Is, is this really the truth? We continue in verse 15. Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound, the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made. Ah, Mazel tov. Good. You've done well. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? A lesson can be learned from this verse right here. If Satan can't get you to worship him willingly through deception, he is going to move to a different tactic, and he's going to push intimidation. Remember that. Because we're going to start seeing more and more intimidation coming upon the elect in this country and around the world. Those who are not deceived, make no mistake, Satan's not done. And this is not to put fear into you. This is to warn you how it's going to go down. Do not be intimidated by him. Amen? So, how do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how do they respond to this threat where their very lives are on the line? Well, in verse 16, I love this response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. It's one of the most incredible situations you will read and responses you will read in all of Scripture. They make the proclamation first and foremost. We don't need to answer you, King. We know our God, the God of Israel, He can save us. We're not worried about that. But that's not all they said. But if He doesn't, in other words, they didn't know. They know they are left in the hands of the living God. But if He doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're not worshiping your God. We're not going to bow down to your image. These are the attributes of the righteous. This is the mentality of thought. Let it sink down deep into your heart. 
It doesn't matter. When we take the stand, we know God can save us. But you know what? If he doesn't, we're not going to worship the beast. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to cave in. This was a direct assault against the Aseret HaDevarim, the Ten Commandments, the heartbeat of Torah, where it forbids making a graven image and bowing down to it. They knew they could not compromise Torah, the heartbeat of Torah, the Ten Commandments, and they didn't give in. So in light of their proclamation, Nebuchadnezzar responds, in verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And I, I got to tell you, it's not a coincidence of the number that we are given in regard to how much hotter he heated it. Could have been three, could have been four, could have been a hundred. The number used is Sheva. It is seven Seven times hotter. What is seven? It is the number of completion. This holds deep prophetic significance here. Follow me on this. It was heated seven times hotter. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And verse 21, Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So, I mean, at this point, we realize Nebuchadnezzar made good on his promise. He went to kill them. And that's fascinating because you find the very same thing happening in Revelation, where the saints are given into the hands of the evil one. Exact same scenario is unplaying, uh, unfolding here. Now, we're about to embark on, this is where the story gets interesting. This is the whole point of coming here. We come into verse 22. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you to ponder this. This fiery furnace, which burned hotter than it had ever burned before, seven times, it ends up consuming the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in it. What, what do we say? What do we see happening? They were destroyed by the fire. This is a great example of the effects of the hell of Torah, the effects that the fire is going to have upon the wicked. The fire is going to burn so hot, it will be so intense that even the heavens and the earth are going to melt with fervent heat, Right? The whole thing is going to be turned into a fiery furnace. But what happens to the righteous? This is where it comes good news. What happens? What effect does the fire have upon them? Well, we read in verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Then he answered and said to the king, True, O king. In verse 25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. They're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And we go on in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, 
Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors were gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not even on them. Just ponder that. This is one of the most powerful revelations found anywhere in the Bible concerning the righteous and how they are spared. How they could possibly survive the hell of Torah that is going to consume everything. How you could survive this fire. There is so much that needs to be said, that needs to be broken down here. Where we look, this is where Yeshua comes into the picture. He didn't see three men, he saw four. This is critical. This is where we get into understanding salvation. This is where it's going to be really begin to get intense. But unfortunately, not until next week. Because we're going to end here today. The music team can come up. And next week we are going to be circling back on a subject I did not give enough time on. And that was last Passover. I talked about the structure of the faith. We are going to circle back on that because it ties into the hell of Torah and understanding salvation, understanding the necessity of the law and observance therein. That's that much more.